Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm really excited to be joined by Matthew Bio, the CEO and co-founder of Snapdragon Chemistry. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks very much for having me today, Alok. You know, maybe to kick us off, we'd love it if you could give us a quick intro on yourself and how you got starting and, and building Snapdragon. Sure, thanks. So I, I'm a chemist by training. Began my career in chemistry once I finished college at a place called Roman Haas, which doesn't exist anymore, but was a fine chemical and polymer company in the 90s back in Philadelphia area. Really found a love for chemistry there. And after about three, four years, I was lucky enough to go to Columbia University for my PhD. Coming out of there, I joined Merck Research Labs, their famed labs in Rahway, New Jersey, which was really a fantastic opportunity to get fantastic training in process development. And I spent five years at Merck, both in Rahway, New Jersey, and then in London for a couple of years at a pilot plant that they had there. And then in 2006, moved to Amgen, where I was there for about a decade. At the end, I was a director of process development there. And that was also a really neat opportunity because we got to do both biologics and small molecules. So really see the entire therapeutic modality window that's current in the pharmaceutical space. And then while I was at Amgen, we really started to dive into something called continuous manufacturing as a way to take advantage of some of the technology of being able to continuously produce chemicals as opposed to doing it in a batch sense. And we can get into that a little bit more, but became really interested in this space. And in 2015, I think Tim Jamison at MIT and some colleagues launched uh, Snapdragon Chemistry, which grew out of about a decade-long adventure in continuous manufacturing that was going on at MIT at the Novartis MIT Center for Continuous Manufacturing. So they launched Snapdragon really to provide consulting services to the pharmaceutical industry on continuous manufacturing. When I saw that, uh, I thought, based on my experience at Amgen with continuous manufacturing, that there was a real need for a dedicated group of, of scientists, engineers, uh, software folks to come together and deeply understand this technology of continuous manufacturing. And so we kind of shifted Snapdragon's focus to be more of a process development organization focused on that capability of delivering continuous manufacturing solutions to the pharmaceutical industry, primarily refined chemicals as well. So that was the founding of Snapdragon and Snapdragon was founded in 2014 be five years here for me, and uh, we're a little over 30 people now, and it's a rapidly growing organization at this point. That's amazing. Well, it certainly sounds like you guys are hitting the right set of topics in terms of manufacturing, supply chain, process development, et cetera, at the right time, some unique technology. You know, one of the things that always intrigued me about Snapdragon is the core focus around continuous manufacturing and some of the unique technology and perspectives that you guys have there. If you wouldn't mind, appreciate if you could give the audience a quick overview of continuous manufacturing, some of the benefits, and how you sort of see it changing the way we think about drug development as well as drug manufacturing. It's a really old technology, actually, continuous manufacturing. Uh, the Ford Model T is an example of you know, one of the first continuous manufacturing. You set up an assembly line and each person adds a piece to it. You can think about building molecules that way as well. Back in the 1920s, petrochemical industry first moved to continuous manufacturing when they found that batch vessel, they couldn't make enough of the, the fuel for planes and, and cars that were just coming on the road at that time in these large batch vessels. That was quite hazardous. You had to fill the whole thing up. You had to heat it to really high 
temperatures. It was pretty inefficient. And so what they figured out is they could do this by heating a tube to high temperature to crack the uh, petroleum into gasoline to, to more volatiles that could be used as fuels by continuously running the material through this, this heated zone. And so that industry, petroleum industry, has been using continuous manufacturing now for about 100 years. I think what was what's different about pharmaceutical industry is there's a huge range of chemistries that we use to build up the molecular complexity that's common in small molecule therapeutics. And a lot of that chemistry has all been learned in small round bottom flasks that you remember well from you know high school chemistry and, and beyond. And if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, it's mostly chemists that are you know making the decisions on what molecules to make, how to put them together and things like that. Whereas in the petrochemical, it's all engineers that are making those decisions. And they're, they're really well schooled and continuous. That's where they're trained. But chemists don't know that area. And so it's, it's really a different mindset where you have to think about instead of putting everything into a flask and allowing the time to pass and the reaction to take place, you got to imagine putting it in one end of a tube. And then as you go down the length of the tube, the chemistry converting that, that substrate to products. And so it's a process that takes place not in space so much, but in time along this uh, assembly line, if you will, that's putting the molecule together. So the really neat thing about that is you can design reactions that are fast, so they take place in these small footprint tubes, uh, and you can continuously make more material by just scaling out in time as opposed to scaling up in size. And so what's neat about that is the size of the reactor doesn't change, and yet the amount of material it can make can change dramatically from running it for an hour to running it 365 days a year to make material. So that type of scalability just in time means that you don't have to change the process. And every time you have to scale up a batch process, it's really a change in that process. There's significant things that change, things like mass transport and surface area and the ability to heat and cool and things like that. And we can get out of all that. And for pharmaceuticals, it's really powerful because you can take that technology for synthesis that you use to make those first few hundred milligrams of material. And you can probably keep that technology and make kilos of material if you apply continuous manufacturing. And what that means is that you can get to that proof of concept. Do I have something that's therapeutically valuable here without ever having to change the process? Because that's a lot of investment to change a process. That's the time and people and materials and risk of changing the purity profile if you've already done your talk studies. So there's some really interesting advantages there. And then as you move from development where speed is the advantage and quickness to the clinic to late in development where you're thinking about building a commercial plant, the value of continuous manufacturing switches from one of a technological value, being able to do chemistries you couldn't normally do in batch, to being a value economic. Economically. So to give an example, I know of one company that, you know, you do this three batch validation to prove to the FDA that you can make this drug with the quality that you tend. So that drug typically will have like a seven year ramp to where they're going to be making the maximum amount, but they got to validate that process at that scale. So if you're the CFO of this company, you've just made, you know, a billion dollars worth of saleable material that's going to sit in inventory because you don't have the sales to support that yet. So from a financial perspective, that's a huge thing to put on your inventory. And the capital cost of a plant is massive. You can imagine spending $120 million to build a manufacturing plant for just one molecule. I think the Novartis Center uh, at MIT has done the calculation that for many of these processes, we can do that with 10, 20, maybe 30% of the capital costs and build the same capacity. So that's, a, that's another opportunity there of continuous. 
And then there's other things like safety. We never have the large inventory of reactives because we're making more material in time, not space. So we don't have to fill huge vessels uh, with very reactive reagents and let that take its course. We can do that on a very small scale, much safer prospect. And environmentally, there's a lot of opportunity for things like heat recovery and solvent recycle that go along with continuous. That means that you never need these huge inventories and waste of heat, cooling, or solvents. So yeah, lots of, lots of opportunity, lots of benefit to continuous manufacturing. I would say that for Snapdragon chemistry, we're agnostic. We want to apply the best technology based on what the science is telling us. And continuous manufacturing is a tool in that toolbox of the best technologies. So it's a really powerful technology. It doesn't solve all solutions in chemical manufacturing, but uh, certainly a very useful tool. Awesome. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is particularly interesting from your description of continuous manufacturing is the fact that when you're able to decrease the size and explore new parts of the parameter space of chemistry, you could potentially find, not necessarily find new synthetic roots, but you make new synthetic roots potentially feasible given the capabilities or the introduction of light, for example, et cetera. Can you help us uh, maybe understand sort of how much of the parameter space in your view you think could actually be opened up through continuous processes versus batch? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have we have processes right now that, like you mentioned, light that are photochemical processes that are extraordinarily efficient, but unscalable, really, uh, in traditional batch technology. But since you're flowing through a, a narrow tube, that incident light can get in there and it can do the chemistry that it needs to to allow those really efficient processes that are being developed for photochemistry. I would point to a couple examples. Uh, one in particular is this whole suite of chemistries that are require very low temperatures to operate that are very common in a discovery type setting where you might be doing lithiations or things like that to build up molecular complexity. Cooling a 100 liter vessel even or a 1000 or a 10,000 liter vessel to minus 50 degrees is extraordinarily slow, expensive, very uh, environmentally impactful. And the reason you have to do that is because the heat transfer out of that vessel is really bad. So if you've got a really hot reaction and you add a little bit of that reagent to the middle of that batch, it's got to get its way out of there and transfer that heat. And that's pretty poor in a big batch vessel. So in, in these tubular reactors, what you can do is you can do that same chemistry that required minus 70, minus 50 degrees. You can do it at almost room temperature in some cases. And the reason is, is it's got on, on many cases 100x or more the heat transfer capacity. So you don't need to cool down the whole mass of the thing to be able to get out that little bit of heat. You can actually use the big surface area that you have to remove heat very efficiently. And so that's a, that's a huge area for continuous manufacturing is being able to take those formerly very difficult to control, very exothermic reactions and do those on a practical, environmentally sound way. Uh, and then the other extreme is high temperature and high pressure. It's really expensive to build pressurized reactors that operate at high temperature or gas pressure. There's a lot of safety interlocks naturally because you've got this huge steel bomb, if you will, that's you're pressurizing. But tubes are very stable to pressure. Uh, you know, the standard stuff you can buy at Home Depot probably has like a 7,000 psi burst, you know, on it. So uh, tubes are designed to be able to manage pressure, which means you can do things much faster, mass transports much better. We have a process right now that runs at 350 degrees. It would be completely impractical to do that in a batch reactor, or if you had to do it, it would be really wasteful from an environmental perspective. 
we can actually do things like heat recovery with cross heat exchangers like you might have in your house so that you're not wasting that heat as it goes out. You're able to use it to heat up the incoming stream. So really neat opportunities to create efficient processes are enabled by continuous manufacturing. And being able to take advantage of that expanded window means that that reaction that would have taken years at 100 degrees is complete in minutes or seconds at 300 degrees. So in terms of space-time productivity, you now have a really productive reactor. The thing that's neat about that is it means that we can take something that fits on a dining room table and make hundreds of kilos of material with it, whereas normally that would take a vessel that you know would be the size of your house. Any chance you could give us a sense of like what that relationship between time in a continuous manufacturing setup and the batch equivalent would be to create or synthesize the same amount of material? So for example, if I had a liter size volume, right, or a yeah. thousand liters, whatever that might be, like how does that equate, do you think, in, for a conventional uh, material to how much time you need to run your continuous manufacturing setup for? So we ran a reaction uh, just a couple of weekends ago. It probably had maybe 50 mil total volume in the thing, and it made on the order of a few hundred grams an hour. So we're making a few kilos a, a day. So for every kilo, you got to figure... We were able to intensify it because we don't need as much solvent as well. So you got to figure for each one of those kilos, we probably needed 10 liters, 20 liters of solvent. So if you're going to make 10 kilos of material, which we can do in a day in this little small footprint, 100 mil reactor, if you're going to make 10 kilos of material, you need a uh, hundred liters or two, 200 liter vessel at least. And then you're going to go into a workup probably, and that's going to add to the volume as well. So yeah, I would, I would say a hundred mils equivalent to maybe 100 liters or more in some cases. Wow. So that's quite amazing. good scaling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, you know, I really appreciate giving us uh, an overview of sort of continuous manufacturing, some of the characteristics of, as well as the benefits. As you mentioned, you know, the broad philosophy of continuous has been around for several decades, especially in other parallel industries. But maybe in the context of uh, Snapdragon specifically, would love to learn how you guys are specifically bringing this technology to market some of the unique aspects of your approach and the IP that you guys have generated internally to help deliver sort of new processes, new technologies to market. Absolutely. So, I mean, part of the thing that motivates us is we're really interested in this overall process of process development. In looking at each piece of that, every step along the way of how we get from, hey, this is a really cool molecule to, hey, I got to make hundreds of kilos of it if, if, it, if it's ever going to be useful to anybody. And that's a, that's a really long chain process. And where we focus in is on that developing the chemistry, identifying the right chemistry, and getting that converted to something that we can scale into a plant. The, the way that we're using continuous manufacturing, I'll focus on two areas. So for those folks that are advancing a molecule into the clinic, we use continuous manufacturing to really get them out of this issue of having to redesign the chemistry to go from early phase discovery type synthesis to that first kilo or two of material that they need to get into the clinic. Usually, that's a real bottleneck. That's the only time that drug substance is typically on a critical path in drug development because you got to stop. You got to change the process to something that you can scale reproducibly and safely. You know, you're not going to be using really hazardous reagents if you're going to be making kilos of material. So that's a, that's a lot of process investment to get to that first kilo. And you don't even know if there's any value in this. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to think about how we could use continuous manufacturing to take that thing that you were doing on the bench on really small scale to make those first few hundred milligrams and just continue to use that, scale it up in time and make a kilo of material without having to change the process at all. And so we've spent a lot of time developing laboratory scale reactors 
that are at a scale. They're not micro reactors, say they're meso reactors, uh, mesofluidics, so on the order of uh, 100 microns to millimeters of diameter tubing and things like that, so that we can actually develop the chemistry on a platform using very little amounts of material. But when we find the right thing, just scale it out in time and run it and make that first kilo of, of compound for for the clinic so that you can get in there quickly. So that that's one area is that quick to clinic, quick to the right, the right answer. And part of that is process understanding. So you've got to you've got to be able to get data out of these systems and you've got to have high confidence that that data is meaningful in really representing what's happening in the reaction that you've you've measured all the right parameters and then also be in a system that you understand well enough the engineering of it so that you can translate it to something larger when you do have to scale it up so that all that information feeds process knowledge that's translatable into manufacturing knowledge. So there we've designed in the lab engineers and chemists side by side with analytical scientists and actually software folks as well in the lab designing systems for the laboratory that we can pull all of this data from continuously. That's the other beautiful thing about continuous. So in a batch reactor, it's like cooking tomato sauce at home. You reach in, you taste a little bit, and you know you assume that that's what the whole batch tastes like, but you don't really know. You know there could be a chunk of tomato over here that you missed, you didn't squash fully, and so you know you find that out when everybody's sitting around the table at the end of the day. That's not when you want to find out in manufacturing that something's wrong in your sauce. You want to find that out early on. So the neat thing about continuous is since this is all moving through a tube. You can put a probe in that tube and you can measure every single thing that's going through it. So we know 100% of what we're measuring. I know the sauce tastes good everywhere in the pot. And that's a really neat capability of continuous. So we can put probes all over these reactors. We can put fancy things like IR, UPLC, UV Viz, Raman in there, or we could put really simple things like mass flow, temperature, pressure. All those things tell us so much about the reaction that when I was sitting there doing this in a round bottom flask 25 years ago, I had no idea. Half the time, I didn't even have a temperature probe inside the flask. Now I've got temperature before, after, during, you know, at every point throughout the thing. So I would say that we know exactly what's going on in our reactions at very small scale. And then we've designed scale up reactors that very accurately mimic what we have in the labs. And so we don't have a lot of equipment that would be, you know, black box, off the shelf kind of thing that I don't understand the engineering of. We built it all. And we built it in a way such that chemical engineers anywhere in the world will recognize the tools that we're using. And they can get them at their local engineering supply shop, you know, a heat exchanger, you know, a valve, a pneumatic valve. There's nothing exotic here. You know, there's tools out there already that we can leverage to do the complex chemistry we want. The one thing that wasn't out there that we've built from the ground up that I'm really proud of is we've built this lab operating system, if you will. So it really came out of a need. So once you start to put all of these pieces of equipment together, you've got pumps that are feeding this thing. You've got all these sensors that we just talked about that are pulling data from it. That's a really complex system. And yet the beauty of a round bottom flask is one person can sit there and do that and manage everything. So how did how do you create a system where one person can still do a reaction with all that complexity? So what we did is use, you know, what's really widely available now and really inexpensive is IoT technology. You know it well from your career. We were able to take that technology and we were able to put it on every piece of machinery in the shop and pull data from it in real time and actually present that to the user in a way that allowed them to understand exactly what's happening in their reactors at all time. And then, you know, once you've once you've done all that, now you can control the systems. So now we can tell it to do a series of reactions. And of course, not only that, it can do it while we're not there and it can call us or text us and tell us what it's doing and it can shut itself down. 
And now just recently, we've taken another really neat step that uh, has been around in academia, but haven't seen examples of it in industry yet is well, we've taken optimization algorithms and put those on top of that system. And so now the system can actually pick what reactions it wants to do to explore a, d- a design space of a process, come back and tell us the next day or so what the optimal point in that landscape is for whatever the objective function is we're looking for. And then we can go after that as the optimal process. So that's been a really neat uh, story. We've built uh, hardware. We've just launched this uh, product, which is um, a sample relay product. So it actually does what the chemists would have had to do. They would have had to take the sample. They would have had to prepare an analytical sample from that. And then they would have to walk over to the UPLC or HPLC and inject that sample. And then they'd have to wait for the result to come out. So we built a little box. It's a little cube, about one foot by one foot, that does all of it. And so it grabs the sample, it dilutes it out, it, it sends it over to the UPLC, it tells the UPLC what the file is, what it is, and starts it running. And then it gets the data back and it sends it to the algorithm. So that, that's that been a really neat journey. And it's really this ability of a software engineer to sit next to a chemist, to sit next to an engineer and an analytical scientist, and four of them just say, hey, this is what I needed to do. And each one of them has the tools to be able to address some part of that problem. And so by the end of the day, they've got something that's working in some cases, which is really just you know phenomenal. That's the neat thing about a small company as well, is you can put those people all in the same room. That's awesome. And one of the things I'm, I'm curious about, you know, it sounds like you guys are touching about some really interesting convergence of capabilities, right? IoT, AI, cloud, chemistry, right? Pharmaceutical world. I'm curious, like, as you start to think about the future of Snapdragon, though its origins were academic in nature and focused on compounds and materials and systems, what do you sort of think as you opine, you know, over over a whiskey, you know, at night on the future of Snapdragon? Like in three to five years, what do you sort of see as being the main product of the organization? Is it going to be some of the equipment that you mentioned? Is it going to be the systems, the know-how? What do you sort of see for the future? This is something that, to be honest with you, I struggle with quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for advice in, under every rock at this point to help us think about that. I think what's what's interesting is is you've seen the pharmaceutical industry deintegrate such that you've now got a lot of small discovery shops that are finding new molecules. And then you've got these phenomenal large pharma companies that are able to really develop processes and products and market them and, and get them through those complex clinical trials. But there's that space in between where somebody needs to get this through to proof of concept so that the big guys get interested in it and can take it and market it and make it a real therapeutic. And the little guys can get their new discovery to that answer of, is this valuable? And I think what I'm wondering is, does it matter where that chemistry happens? You know, could you do it remotely? You know, could you could a lot of that stuff happen over a web connection where you've got a molecule, you need kilos of it. Can we really democratize chemistry and that access to process development through some of these technologies? Because I think where we're going to get is that you don't actually need to even be in the room to run some of these experiments. And so then, you know, you can be anywhere in the world and you could be a client that's logging into a system. You didn't have to add all this infrastructure to your company to be able to do some reactions on a reasonable scale that's going to tell you something about your process and help you develop or make a material. So how can how can we deliver to folks that are the discovery folks 
those tools that they need to get to their next answer uh, in the most democratic way that doesn't require them setting up uh, chemical infrastructure. Because I'll tell you, this is a capital intensive business. It's really hard to do. You've got lots of regulatory and safety issues as well. And so if you could centralize some of that, you know, in, to some degree, you know, would that be a useful product to people that they could just have access to that capability? And I think you also see the folks that are working on retrosynthetic design algorithms and things like that. So now you can think about really democratizing chemistry and chemistry isn't for chemists. It's a tool for everybody. So some material science guys like, boy, if I could just change this part of the molecule and put something like a chlorine here, boy, I'd love to do that. But how do I make it? Well, log into this system and draw the structure you want and the machines will go to work overnight and tomorrow they'll come back and they'll say, here's your molecule. So that would be really neat. I don't think we're going to get there in five years, but what can we do to push in that direction? We're making a lot of automated laboratory reactors that we do our development on. We certainly see value in those in terms of some clients actually buy them. They say, hey, we want that for our lab. And so we sell that to them. I think this gap in being able to really collect data from a whole lot of systems that are not related to each other, you know, it could be a a chiller that's 20 years old, it could be an ozone detector that you just bought off of eBay, you know, all that stuff is, you can talk to it through a computer, but how do you have a platform that can handle all of that diversity that's in a lab? And I think that's the other part of it that, you know, is coming together here is being able to do that. Uh, and then put it in a centralized place where we can manage all the chemical technology and stuff like that. So, you know, I didn't answer your question. I don't honestly know. I mean, I I really love process development. That's what we want to do. We want to continue to see our processes scale to commercial. We've got one that, you know, we're talking about millions of metric tons potentially in some point. And, uh, you know, that that's a pretty cool prospect. But how do, how do we get there and how do we get there the most efficient? And we're going to just keep chipping away at this uh, process of process development and pulling in technology where it fits to solve those problems. You know, I think this is even extensible beyond chemistry. You know, I go to the local um, brewery here in, in Cambridge area and those guys are trying all the same things to make their beer better that we are. And boy, if they could just have all the data out of those systems like we do, you know, and this is cheap stuff, IoT now, you know, it's pretty low cost. It's accessible to everybody. I mean, it's on your front doorbell. So, you know, it should be it should be a really empowering tool for anybody that's doing this sort of empirical process development to really gather data and then take that data and use it in ways like you suggest uh, with machine learning. Awesome. That's great. Well, it certainly sounds like a lot of potential for where Snapdragon's going, as well as the options you've got from a business model standpoint, right? Whether it's the systems themselves, the data, the capability, I think certainly have a lot in front of you that the world's your oyster, right? So that's awesome. Well, you know, Matt, wanted to sort of thank you for joining us uh, today for this interview. And I really appreciate you know, the time that you spent sort of walking us through a little bit about both continuous manufacturing, Snapdragon chemistry, as well as the unique mindset and philosophy you guys bring to the table when it comes to the process of process development. Well, thanks very much for the invite. And I, I really enjoy your Biotech 2050 podcast. I've actually uh, listened to quite a few of them at this point, and they're really, they're really interesting. So congratulations on your platform. Thanks so much. Well, looking forward to having you on again soon and seeing what new innovations Snapdragon's bringing to market. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Malok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.